Father, as we open your word today, would you guard us? Would you guard us from the temptation to see this through a man-centered lens in which we, we read that which we're instructed to do, but we immediately start to try to achieve it on our own strength and effort, and, and by doing so, um, gain merit. Uh, but by doing so, seek after your acceptance instead of, Lord, being driven to our knees in the realization that we can't do such a thing, being reliant on our mercies, which then enable us to do as you require. So I pray, God, that you'd point us this morning to the cross. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Matthew, in his infinite wisdom, uh, has, well, not infinite wisdom, but he's a wise guy, okay. Uh, in the liturgy this morning, he's included a prayer of confession that is extremely helpful for us in understanding the text in which we are in. So I want to read this again. Oh, Father, forgive us for thinking small thoughts of you and for ignoring your immensity and greatness. Lord Jesus, forgive us when we forget that you rule the nations and our small lives. Holy Spirit, we offend you in minimizing your power and squandering your gifts. We confess that our blindness to your glory, O triune God, has resulted in shallow confession, tepid conviction, and only mild repentance. Have mercy on us. In Jesus' name, amen. We see in this prayer what happens when we have an inadequate vision of God's glory, and that's what we see in the text this morning. There's this memorable scene that always comes to mind from the 2010 blockbuster Inception. So I, I, go, to, I go to a movie theater like twice a year, you guys, but I saw Inception in the theater four times. All right, so this, this bounces around in my head a little. And um, if you don't know of it, Inception is the science fiction action film written and directed by Chris Nolan. Uh, and the main characters, this is a really brief summary of the plot, but the main characters are these extractors. Their job is to essentially perform corporate espionage, entering into the dreams of their subjects in order to, to extract information and sell that information to others. So they use this experimental dream-sharing technology where they can build a dream world, enter into that dream, the dream of their target or victim or subject, and then tricking their subjects subconscious to divulging company secrets. That's the idea of the movie. But there's this scene in which uh, the extractors are being attacked in, in the dream by the subconscious of their victim. So their victim knows about this kind of corporate espionage. They know, okay, this could happen to me someday. So they paid somebody to come in and effectively militarize their subconscious against foreign invaders. Uh, I promise this is going somewhere. So. Um, <laughs> They, they enter into the stream, they're attacked uh, by gunfire, and Arthur, the guy who's responsible for managing the dreams, has made sure he's going to have a rifle in the dream world just in case something like this happens. So he goes to the trunk and he pops the trunk of the car and he comes out and he, he goes by the, the door of this uh, parking garage that they're in, and they're, all this gunfire, they're pinned down by gunfire from the rooftop across from them. So he's, he's shooting up once or twice where he can. But it's pretty obvious he's not making a dent, and there's not really a way out for them. And then Eames, who's my favorite character in the movie, uh, he's one of the extractors. He just strolls over to the window, and he looks at Arthur, who's ducked back behind the door. And he casually says to him, it's a great line, he says, 
You mustn't be afraid to dream a little bigger, darling. And he pulls out a grenade launcher and just obliterates the people across the way. And um, Arthur's vision of this world that they were inhabiting was too, too small. Too small of a vision. He was missing a much bigger picture, bigger opportunity. Why? Because his head was stuck in the way the rest of the world operated rather than how this new dream world operated. And he needed Eames to tell him, you mustn't be afraid to dream a little bigger, right? And then to clarify what that meant, what that could look like. And in a similar way, in our text this morning in Zechariah chapter 2, as we continue through this minor prophet together, the angel in the vision is sent to tell the people of Israel that their vision of this new world post-exile is far too small and that their heads are stuck in the way the world operates rather than understanding how God operates. And they need this angel to come to this character in this vision, this man with the measuring line, and, and effectively say, you mustn't be afraid to dream a little bigger. You mustn't be afraid to hope a little bigger, a little deeper, and then clarify the kind of belief that they should have about who God is and what he is doing. And so that the chapter is really divided into two parts in order to show us this. We always preach the, the structure of the passage. I do that because we do that at Gospel Life because it helps us learn how to read our Bibles. Right? The Bible is structured. Okay, so we preach the structure of the passage, the argument of the passage. And when we do that, we see two different parts in Zechariah chapter 2. And that's because the word of the Lord comes to Zechariah really in two different ways. First, it comes as a vision. And this is now the third in this set of eight visions that we see together in Zechariah. So now we're on vision three. And all of these visions show God's people what it looks like for them to repent, to turn from their sin, to follow God. So set your eyes on chapter one real quick, just page back. Chapter one, verse three. Let's remember the initial call that Zechariah has for, for God's people, right? Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. So the context for Zechariah, for this vision that we see here, is repentance. He's calling God's people to turn from sin out of exile. So they, they're in exile because of their sin. They're coming out of exile and coming out, they're called to repent, to turn from their sin, to follow God. And so the question is, you know, what does that look like? You know, what does returning to the Lord look like? And these visions actually answer that question. They flesh that out for us a little bit. Uh, they give us a picture of what it looks like to turn from sin and follow God. And so the first vision, if you remember, showed us God's mercy precedes the activity of repentance. Always, 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 God's mercy precedes the activity of repent repentance. If we are to repent... It must be rooted firmly in what God has done rather than in what, something that we need to do. So rooted in God's mercy, it has to, like repentance is made possible only by God's mercy, impossible without God's mercy. But then we saw last week in the second vision, do you remember, the, the ultimate victory of God's people doesn't come by our own strength, but by God coming to save us. Right? In other words, the activity that God's people are called to do in this repentance, in these visions, you know, returning from exile, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the city, singing and rejoicing as the people of God, um, doing this temple work together, obeying the law, really delighting in the law of the Lord. The people hear these remedies from God and they wonder, how on earth could this possibly lead to their deliverance? You know, how could these simple means of holy living and temple work 
ministry, you know, in the temple, possibly save them. As we said last week, the means that God provides for his people at first glance, they really seem counterintuitive. It seems like this, is, this just is pointless. And so they've largely abandoned the work of the temple. It lays in shambles, and many have given themselves over to the pleasure of the culture at large. They've just chosen to remain comfortable in Babylon. And that's what leads us now into the third vision, because this vision, here's the problem, this vision of the kingdom that God's people have coming out of exile is far too small. All right, so the word of the Lord comes in two ways. First, a vision, but then second we see, that's verses one through five, but secondly, it comes in the form that's commonly known in the prophetics as an oracle, which is to say that God directly speaks to his people here. This is Yahweh's direct speech to his people by way of a prophet. And in each of these parts, you know, the word of the Lord coming to Zechariah, Zechariah by vision and coming by direct speech from the Lord, both of these parts will, will seek to correct the small vision of God's people with this big vision of who God is and what he intends to do through them. So let's start in the first section, verses 1 through 5, and it's here that we see. So in this first part, we see an insufficient vision. It's the first part of the text. Verses 1 through 5, an insufficient vision. What do I mean by that? Well, let's, um, let's look to the text. Verse 1. I lifted my eyes. So again, transitional phrase. Every time we see that, he's moving from the last vision into this uh, newest one. I lifted my eyes, and behold, what does this word do? It gets our attention on the centerpiece of the vision, which is in this case, a man with a measuring line in his hand. So the primary focus of this new vision is on this man who's holding a measuring line. And there are a lot of questions that we could ask about the man. We start to wonder, who is he? But before we get there, let's start with the question that Zechariah asks, because I think this is what he's getting at. He says, then I said, so this is Zechariah talking, then I said, where are you going? And it's interesting, because maybe observationally, as an aside, it seems like Zechariah is starting to figure out how some of this works. This is the first time that he hasn't asked the interpreting angel for help with the vision. But, you know, in seeing that these visions actually speak and interpret for themselves, he just bypasses the interpreting angel and directly asks uh, the vision, the man in the vision. He says, where are you going? And the answer that the man gives him shouldn't surprise us because in chapter 1, verse 16, do you remember, God declares... By way of future promise, he says, the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. So the man tells Zechariah he's going to measure Jerusalem to see what is its width and what is its length. So what's going on here? Well, we need to know, we need to know this imagery of a measuring line over Jerusalem. It's common, Old Testament prophetic imagery, okay? And it refers to the rebuilding of, yes, Jerusalem, but really even more so the temple after exile. But listen, there's also more to it than that. So I, I want to read to you the way that Jeremiah describes this measuring line, because it's going to help us. Okay, so Jeremiah writes this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, and the measuring line shall go out farther, straight to the hills of Gareb, and shall turn to Goa, the whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes, and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron, to the corner of the horse gate toward the east, shall be sacred to the Lord. Listen to this. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. 
So not only does Jeremiah envision, with this measuring line over Jerusalem, a rebuilding of the city and the temple, right? But he talks about it as being permanent, eternal. And that can be confusing for us because, yes, Jerusalem, along with the temple, was rebuilt after the exile. Zechariah and Haggai declare to God's people they must do this. And, and, and the Lord raises up men like Zerubbabel and uh, Nehemiah to, to rebuild the temple, the city walls. But then in 70 AD, Jerusalem is overthrown by the Romans who obliterate the city and destroy the temple. You know, and yet Jeremiah here says, it shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. Right? So the kind of rebuilding of the city and the temple that Jeremiah is describing is a future hope that goes beyond exile and that's spoken of in eternal terms. This is actually, again, this is common in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 40 has a similar vision in which there's this man with a measuring rod uh, who's measuring the temple of the Lord and prophesying about its future as this permanent dwelling place for the Lord among his people. Okay, so these Old Testament images really stand behind the vision. They inform the vision. The readers of Zechariah's time, the ones who are hearing him prophesy in this way, are going to understand this vision in light of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So they stand behind this vision. Uh, and at the same time, we see, we can see this can confuse us. Right? Because uh, these Old Testament images, on the one hand, convey this importance of the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem in an eternal way. And that leads to God's people coming out of exile and having this deep belief that they're going to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple in a way that puts them back on the world stage as a dominant force because now the presence of God will return to them, surely. And this is what he's going to do. But, but here's where we see the problem. Again, we might speculate. We might speculate together about who this man is with the measuring line. Some say... Some say he's the angel of the Lord, okay? And they use imagery from Ezekiel 40 in part, you know, to make that case. Some say that he represents Israel coming out of exile, which I think if you're going to identify him with someone, that's probably, that's probably closer, I think. But, but I also think that after we read through it, this is the wrong question. Not because it's not interesting, but because the text doesn't tell us. In other words, yes, there is an immediate application that's being directed at post-exile Israel by way of this vision, but no, we don't need to know the precise identity of this man with the measuring line in order to know what that, what that application is, in order to see it, in order to understand it. If, if we required that information, we would have been told it in the text. And I will say that it's very unlikely that this is an angel or even less likely that it's uh, the angel of the Lord because we actually see him now being corrected in the text. You know, this Old Testament figure of the angel of the Lord that um, in many ways identifies as Yahweh himself, okay? Here we see this man being corrected. There's, in a sense, something of a rebuke. Okay, so look at verse 3. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, so the, so the interpreting angel, the angel who talked with me, right, that's the one who helps Zechariah interpret these things, he's, he's watching this vision too, and something that he sees is alarming, and he comes forward, and another angel actually meets with him, and he has instructions for the interpreting angel, and this is what he says, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls, because of the multitude of people and livestock in it, 
and I will be to her a wall of fire around, all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. So there's something of an urgent urgency here, an urgent correction that the angels have for this young man with the measuring line. Run! <laughs> stop, stop him! Run! Say this to him, right? So something needs to be communicated in something of an urgent way, right? It has to happen now. What is it that needs to be said? They want to tell him that his vision of the rebuilt Jerusalem is inadequate. It's far too small. It's insufficient. Why? Well, again, the idea here is that the one doing the measuring is thinking in man-centered terms. And we've seen this the last couple of weeks, right? But we see it again. He's thinking in man-centered terms. This is much like what he described last week with the apparent mismatch between the powerful horns and the craftsmen. Now, here we have a measuring for the fortification of the city, the strength of the city, this like idea that we need to physically fortify Jerusalem moving forward. But what's needed is an understanding that the strength of the city is God himself. Like they, they're, they're misunderstanding and actually forgetting where their strength has always come from, why they've always possessed strength to begin with. It's his glory returning to the city that's deeply needed and forgotten and minimized. You know? It's his presence with his people that's so deeply needed, but that's forgotten and minimized here. And we can see that in the correction from the angel, because look at verse 4 again. Run, say to that, to that young man with the measuring line, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls. So hang on, time out. Wait, without walls? Isn't it the case that God's people right now coming out of exile are quite vulnerable? You know, the surrounding nations mean them great harm. And they don't have any protection, right? So they're quite vulnerable. Surrounding nations wish to bring them harm. But isn't it also the case that Nehemiah will come in part to help rebuild the walls of the city? So why is it urgent? Why is it so urgent to run and tell this young man about a Jerusalem that's inhabited without walls? And the angel tells us why. It says, because of the multitude of people and livestock, it has to be without walls. When God's glory returns to the city of Jerusalem, that glory won't be able to be contained. It'll just burst out. It'll burst forth. Walls can't contain the glory of God, right? So it won't be without walls because in some sense, he's saying that, that walls are bad. He's saying that in this case, his glory, or that protection is bad. He's saying that it's a that his glory comes, it fills, it fills this place, and it, it just busts out. It can't, it can't be contained. Um, Anthony Pedersen puts it well. He says, the image is, therefore, of a city unable to be contained by walls. It's the, that from the inside, God's glory, his blessing. You know, people on livestock throughout the Old Testament are a sign of the abundance of God's blessing. And his blessing, blessing is so great that it's just, it's just spilling out. It's bursting out, right? But what about the opposition from the surrounding nations, right? Because we could say... All right, so if this is a city without walls and it's prospering with God's blessing, isn't it easy pickings for the surrounding nations to just come and, and siege? Verse 5, And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. So God's glory, returning to dwell with his people, not only results in an uncontainable blessing, but also in this eternal protection from evil. 
This wall of fire is this common Old Testament image of God's presence with his people and judgment for those who reject him. So this, in this new Jerusalem, as the angel foresees it, God's people will be perfectly protected and, and, and set apart forever, and his glory will, will overflow, will overflow. I love how one commentator puts it, because here's really the central purpose. I mean, if you want to understand what this vision is about, this hits the nail on the head, and actually in a lot of ways... It helps us understand all of chapter 2, like right at the center of chapter 2. Here it is. This man has believed the prophet's message that Jerusalem will be rebuilt, but he expects the new Jerusalem to be no different from the old. And he would therefore conform its measurements to make it, uh, conform its measurements to those it had before its fall. The man has no vision of a greater city whose builder and maker is God. Do we hear this? It's an insufficient vision, right? It's an insufficient vision. Run after that man in the image and tell him that while he rightly believes the, the, the prophet's message that Jerusalem will be rebuilt, his expectations are that it'll look simply as it did before, it'll function the way that it did before, and, and are we forgetting the reality that at least one of the functions of the law and the temple in the Old Testament was to reveal to Israel that they can't actually follow God apart from his mercies? To reveal their sin to them. And yet their expectation is it's no different from the old, but there's a greater city yet to come whose builder and maker is God, not man. There's a future hope much greater than the one that Israel has for their people in which their salvation is actually possible because it comes to them by way of grace and mercy of the Lord rather than their own strength and effort. They're thinking in temporary man-centered earthly terms while God wants to hold out to them this eternal, God-centered, heavenly hope. They have an insufficient vision. And the angel says, you mustn't be afraid to hope a little deeper, darling. Points to God's eternal glory. Right? But now that this vision, now that this vision of this young man with the measuring line has been exposed as an insufficient measuring, you know, conforming Jerusalem back to its old measurements, placing its hope in Jerusalem's earthly might and efforts rather than God's glory. Now God has a clarifying word for his people. In light of that, God has a clarifying word. In other words, in light of the reality that, I mean, do you really believe this is, is kind of the question. In light of the reality that the future hope of Israel is not found in their strength, but rather in God's glory returning. Like it comes from his power, not mine. Right? His glory, not mine. Right? So in light of that, and in light of the reality that this glory really will, it really will work, do you believe it, to, to bring about this eternal, uncontainable blessing and protection of his people, what, what are we going to do about it, is the question. That's why there's this clarifying word. The word is, if you believe this to be true, how does it inform the way you live your life? How does it inform the way you see the ministry of Israel and the world around it? What are they going to do about it? Are they willing to actually live as though they believe it? Are they willing to place their ultimate trust and hope not in their work, not in the thickness of their own walls, not in their military might in some sense, but rather in the work of the Lord for them, the Lord doing for them what they could never do for themselves? And if they are, if they actually believe that, if they, if they confess that to be true and they say, yes, I believe that, yes, I trust in the Lord, if that's the case, then there are certain things there's certain entailments that will just naturally follow from that. 
right? There are certain things they will do in response. So verses 6 and 7, we see one thing. One thing that they'll do if they actually believe that this is true. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. See, this is, okay, this is a clarifying word in a couple of different ways. Yes, it's clar- it's clarifying word from the Lord. God's clarifying what this future hope entails. We just talked about that, and we're going to talk about it again in a little bit. But second, you know, God's people are also called to clarify something. God's people here are called to clarify where they stand. No more riding the fence. That's, that's the message of Zechariah in chapter 2. It has immediate impact for us. Immediate application. We see that here. I mean, the land of the north. Obviously referring to Minnesota. Um, so flee. Up. No, that's not. Here we see a reference in the Old Testament to Babylon. Now you might look at a map and say, okay, well, Babylon's pretty much due east of Jerusalem. But the route to get to Babylon in this time is pretty much due north and then north and east, right? So so it's known as, in, in, Old Test- in the Old Testament, the land of the north. We're talking about Babylon. And the imagery of Babylon, uh, as we talked about in Revelation, is this, this world that stands opposed to God. Right? This, 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 um, it's imagery that's meant to symbolize the world order that stands opposed to the Lord. And so the idea here is, are you willing to leave Babylon for Zion? Are you willing to leave the world, to forsake the world, For your life with God? Are you willing to forego the sinful pleasures of this world and even the acceptance and the pats on the back from the surrounding world as a result of the life that God has given you? It's like Christian in that opening scene of Pilgrim's Progress, in which he has to make that difficult decision to leave his home, to leave life in the city of destruction behind. And really, the city of destruction is Babylon. Babylon is the city of destruction. It's representative for this world order that one day will be judged and destroyed. And so Christian has to make that difficult decision. And there are all these voices mocking him for talking about leaving, tempting him to stay where he can find comfort of all these earthly pleasures. The comfort of of acceptance. In the culture in which he lives, the shame of being seen as a weirdo can be avoided right, by staying in the city of destruction. And in the end, he plugs his ears to these voices and he runs toward the narrow path yelling, life, life, eternal life. The question is one of allegiance. Are you a citizen of this world or are you a citizen of heaven? Are you a daughter of Zion or a daughter of Babylon? Are you going to stay in the city of destruction because it's comfortable? Or are you going to flee from it? knowing that that judgment is imminent. The Lord's word here through Zechariah sounds an awful lot like evangelist talking to Christian about his need to lead the city of destruction. I'll leave you to go home and read Pilgrim's Progress again, but up, up, flee from the land of the north. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. Stop dwelling with Babylon is the call here. Why? Verses 8 and 9, for thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me uh, to the nations who plundered You, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who served them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. So Zechariah is saying again, essentially, listen. These are not my words. These are God's words. This isn't thus says Zechariah. 
This is, thus saith the Lord. And in the end, you will know that this is true. This is verifiable. Because all those who continue to attempt to live as a daughter of Babylon while claiming to be of the Lord will experience his judgment. In other words, he's saying, you aren't, saying to these people who are dwelling in Babylon, you aren't engaging in what I've called you to do because you don't believe the means that I've given you for redemption. But those means absolutely will work in power to save you. And if you actually placed your trust in me to do what you couldn't do for yourself, you wouldn't just sit there in Babylon. No more riding the fence. What would they do instead? Well, they'd flee. They'd flee. If they believed this, if they truly placed their trust in God rather than themselves, they'd, they'd renounce ungodliness and worldly passion. They'd flee. But also, look at verses 10 and 12. They'd sing and rejoice. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and I will again choose Jerusalem. Same language we saw as last week, right? I will again choose Jerusalem. So we see that it's a clarifying word here, in the sense that the people have to clarify where they stand. But it's also a clarifying word in the sense that God continues to show them what this future coming kingdom absolutely will look like as they place their trust in him. It's a kingdom of singing and rejoicing because God has come to save his people and his people are made up of every tribe and every tongue and every nation. God sees them as his portion, the very apple of his eye, his treasure. And his people can truly believe and trust and know. They can know with certainty that this is going to happen. Why? Well, because of the source. Look at verse 13. Be silent. All flesh, that means every single created person. Not just Israel. Believers, non-believers, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord. In the end, he's the judge. In the end, he will have the last say. And then it tells us, be silent. Why? For he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. The Lord has roused himself from his holy dwelling. What does that mean? Well, God's glory left his people when he judged Israel with the surrounding nations. It departed. His, his glory departed from them. But they can truly trust that everything he's saying here about their future blessing, his future glory residing with his people, this new Jerusalem, this coming kingdom, it's true. Why? Because rather than sitting up in heaven and watching his people attempt just with all futility to do this all over again, you know, attempting to save themselves again through their military might, attempting to, you know, we want a king like the rest of the world wants a king. You know, going down that road again of um, trying to save themselves by, by means of their own strength and power, rather than just watching this happen again and fail again, because it fa it'll fail, rather than just Seeing this happen and saying, well, how many times do I have to tell you? Which he would have been right to do. He, he could have just watched. You know, he could have just watched the dude with the measuring line go about his business. Knowing full well that physical walls and earthly power couldn't save. Knowing that their need was deeper, that they couldn't save themselves from their own central problem. He could have just watched. 
But instead, what does he do? He roused himself from his holy dwelling and came for them. Run, tell that young man. There's a future hope coming. I, I will rouse myself. And so Zechariah anticipates that God's glory will return to Jerusalem. But there's a sense in which, you know, God's reputation is on the line here. Because he said that his glory would fill the temple. He said Jerusalem would never be overthrown. It would be established forever. But you know what? His glory doesn't appear to come in the temple. There's no indication in the scriptures that his glory ever returned to the rebuilt temple post-exile. And the Romans overthrow Jerusalem. They, they demolish the temple. They plunder it. If you visit Rome right now today and you visit the Arch of Titus, you'll actually see images etched in the middle of the Arch of Titus of Roman soldiers carrying off Jerusalem's plunder, right? So how can we say that God's word stands? He said his glory would come. We have no evidence of that. How does his glory return? How does he rouse himself from his holy dwelling and return again to his people he does this in the person of Jesus Christ because a little over 400 years later, the Apostle John writes this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Right? Roused from heaven. The only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. Putting on flesh. Dwelling among us. Anthony Pedersen is really of great help to us here. He writes this, God has returned to his people in the word become flesh. The one who tabernacled among his people. The one in whom God's grace and truth came together. The one who God made known. We see this across the New Testament, right? So we get into the New Testament text. And what do we see? Jesus was where God's glory was revealed to us. In Jesus, the Lord roused himself from his holy dwelling to dwell with us. He was glorified in his death and resurrection. The Apostle Paul says that in Christ we behold God's glory. And in all these ways and more, Jesus fulfills Zechariah's hope that God would return to his people, that his glory would return to his people. Jesus fulfills Zechariah's vision of a Jerusalem without walls, a new temple, who in the first inst instance is Jesus himself, but who we will also see at the end of the book of Revelation. If you remember, for those of you who are with us as we preach through Revelation together, do you remember what we find in Revelation 21? A figure who measures the length and width of the new Jerusalem with a measuring rod. Just as we see here in Zechariah, right? And, and what, we what do we find residing in that city? The glory of God. And how is it described? Well, there is no temple. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. And all this points forward to Christ. And he is the answer to both problems in the text. Because it's, they're, they're problems for us, too. The inadequate vision that we see in Zechariah chapter 2 is the same inadequate vision of the Christian life today. We have a tendency to measure our spiritual life and progress by means of our own efforts. We do, right? It's, I think it's hardwired into us because of the fall. We have this tendency to always measure my, measure, take my me measuring line and measure my spiritual growth by way of my efforts, by way of what I'm doing or not doing, right? We have this tendency to measure our, our church life, our, the ministry of our local church by ways of our own efforts, things that we can do. 
this, this worldly thing, this man-centered worldly thinking that measures our progress by way of our strength rather than God's mercies. And in doing this, we actually minimize the work of Jesus in the process. We have a hard time imagining, you know, we have a hard time, we do. We have a hard time imagining that God's grace and mercy in Jesus actually could grow us in godliness. And we think of the gospel as that which gets us into the kingdom while it's up to us, it's up to our hard work and white knuckling and ingenuity to make progress in the kingdom. But our vision is inadequate because it minimizes Christ. And as a result, it actually creates more sin. Because we attempt to stand in the place of God. We attempt to steal his glory, right? Um, it's a book that I read to the deck kids from time to time, Full Moon Rising. And it makes this point, and I want to read it to you now. Um, I'm not going to hold up the pictures. You can come look at them after the sermon in the Q&A if you desire. It begins by quoting 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why do you boast as though it were not a gift? Okay, so full moon rising. Dear God, I heard a cosmic story and wondered if it's true. The moon was stealing glory, and this is what he'd do. He bragged each night that his great might could make the darkness flee. And like a kite, he scaled the heights and said, hey, look at me. The pompous moon would only croon the songs that praised his name. He hoped that soon the cosmic tunes would bring him greater fame. It's really strange, but he could change his shape throughout the year. His face would change, then rearrange, and sometimes disappear. He loved the thought that astronauts had danced across his face, and cosmonauts and monkey knots would visit him in space. He bragged that he could cause the sea to swell and rise each day. Then all could see how mightily he'd pull the waves away. He'd boast away and love to say, I am the greatest light. Until one day a piercing ray showed him a shocking sight. He saw his pride and then he cried for all that he had done. For he had lied when he denied his light came from the sun. So now each night a new delight is what he loves the most, reflecting light with all his might. The sun is now his boast. So God, I pray for grace each day to find the joy that's true in all my days and all my ways in making much of you. When we minimize Christ and attempt to steal his glory, attempting to tackle our own sin primarily through our work instead of Christ's work, our own ministry objectives, primarily through our work instead of Christ's work. We actually create more of it. We create more sin, more problems. We create selfishness because it's all about us. We create pride because I'm doing so much better. And therefore, we create resentment and bitterness towards those who aren't doing it the way that we think they should. And then we come to a point of throwing up our hands and saying, well, I guess I, guess I wasn't meant to look different from the rest of the world because this is just too hard because we'll fail. And we, 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 we deal with it by just kind of hanging out in Babylon. Shrugging our shoulders and saying, this is just kind of how it goes. But in Christ, we're given new hearts that enable us to live for him. There's a clarifying word needed in our time. God clarifying to us the gospel of Jesus Christ. And us clarifying, do I, if I believe this, where do I stand? Right? Like, 
Pedersen writes, Christians are to flee from Babylon. In Revelation 18, Babylon is a prostitute who deceives the nations. Babylon represents an anti-God world that seduces people to live for themselves rather than for God. Babylon is attractive. Many exiles had become wealthy and comfortable in Babylon, did not want to return. The call is the same today. And he quotes Revelation 18.4. Come out of her, my people, so that you will no longer share in her sins. Gospel Life Church... We're called together to a greater vision of the gospel. And to the degree that we believe that that gospel is the case, not only do we affirm and believe with great joy in that gospel, but it changes the way that we live so that we renounce ungodly pleasures and acceptance from the culture around us because of the acceptance that we now have in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one through whom we cling to a true and better Jerusalem that overflows with God's blessing, a true and better temple through whom God dwells with his people now through his spirit, a true and better hope who will one day return again and bring renewal and restoration to a broken world forever. It's through his work and not ours that we can now receive pardon from sin and also the strength to flee the city of destruction, living holy and upright lives in this present age. And we proclaim that hope to each other weekly. We proclaim it in the liturgy. We proclaim it in the preached word of God. We proclaim it here together at the table. And so I invite you, if you are a believer in Jesus, to come forward and receive these elements because these elements preach to us the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here we have a dramatic rendering of the gospel before us that we might be reminded again of his blood shed for us, his body broken for us, that we might know the Lord, that he might go with us as we throughout the week desire to serve him. So um, if you're a non-believer and you're here this morning, participate by observing and asking questions, but I invite you forward to take these elements back to your seats with you this morning.